This program is made possible by BibleWayMedia.org, overseen by the Uloga Church of Christ in Uloga, Oklahoma. You're listening to Opening the Scriptures with Don Boyd. Welcome to our program today. This is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to thank you for tuning in to Opening the Scriptures. This, this today, doing it in the morning, but today we're going to be studying the second chapter of Second Thessalonians. The second chapter here is divided into two parts. First of all, there's a discussion of the falling away and the man of sin. And then the second part is thanksgiving, encouragement, and prayer. Uh, some in Thessalonica were shaken and others were troubled about the second coming of Christ being just at hand. And they were expecting Christ to come at any time during their lifetimes. Well, Paul wrote to correct that notion by stating that certain events would take place first. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, we're going to be seeing the falling away and the man of sin. Paul's plea to the Thessalonians by the events that will take place at the second coming is found here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together unto him. And here we have Paul is probably referring to what he had written in the first letter to Thessalonica. They're in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17. It says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so, or in like manner, shall we ever be with the Lord. All right, he starts out the second chapter there by saying, now we beseech you, brethren. The word beseech from, comes from the Greek word eratao, and Thayer's second definition is to request, entreat, beg, or beseech. And it is in the present tense there in the Greek, and that means they keep on begging them. Also, it is in the indicative mood which is the reality of the action from the viewpoint of the speaker. So Paul is here saying the reality of the action is that Jesus is coming again and we're going to be gathered to him and we're pleading with you because of that. And our coming together unto him refers to the assembling of the believers to Christ when he's revealed from heaven. As we read a while ago there, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, verse 17, Then we which are alive and remain shall be called up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we be ever with the Lord. So there's the dead in Christ that will rise there. There's the angels coming, and there's the Lord himself. So that's that gathering together when he is revealed from heaven. Now he's saying the day of the Lord is not already present. 2 Thessalonians 2, 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 2. He says that ye be not soon shaken in mind, 
or be troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter as from us, as that the day of Christ is at hand. Uh, the literal translation of the Bible uh, translate or says, verse 2 says this, For you not to be quickly shaken in the mind, nor to be disturbed, neither through a spirit, nor through speech, nor through letter, as through us, as if the day of Christ has come. And that's more of a literal rendering there. The day of Christ, he's saying it hasn't come. But first of all, he says, don't be soon shaken in mind. The word soon there, a word soon there from the Greek word tekeos, which means quickly or shortly. The word shaken, saluo. Robertson's word picture says that's an old verb to agitate, to cause to totter like a reed. And then don't be shaken in mind, in, apo, forth, from, away from. So in other words, keep your head. Don't be shaken away from your mind. And then he says, and troubled or be troubled. Be troubled comes from the Greek word throeo. And again, Robertson's word pictures there says, to be in a state of nervous excitement, present, passive, infinitive, as if it were going on. <laughs> a continued state of agitation following the definite shock received. So don't be shocked, don't be troubled, don't be in this nervous excitement that's taking place there. And then he says, do not be shaken, do not be troubled, neither by spirit. Uh, neither by spirit would refer to false teachers. 1 John 4.1 gives us an indication of that. 1 John 4.1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. It's all right there. Uh, there are many false, many false teachers, so do not believe all of them, but test them to see if they're from God, and we do that by the word of God. Now he says, neither by word or letter, as if from us. Word or letter there refers, or as by us, refers to false teaching, either by word, as if it was from Paul, or as by a forged letter, as if that letter was from Paul. And then the day of Christ is at hand means that some were thinking the day of Christ was present, occurring at that time. Uh, you look at the word at hand. The two words there comes from one Greek word, enestemi, and Strong says that means to place on hand, that is reflexively impinned as a participle to be instant. So it's not right now, it's not at hand, Paul is saying. And then he says, the reason is the falling away must come first. And that's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. 2 Thessalonians 2, 3. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first 
and that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So in other words, he's saying, do not be deceived about the timing of the second coming of Christ. Uh, he goes back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. 1 Thessalonians 5, 2. Because he says there, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so cometh as a thief in the night. You don't know when it's happening. So don't be deceived about the timing. He says, the falling away must come first. Now, as you look at the King James Version, it says, a falling away. The word translated a there comes from the Greek word ha. And Moulton defines that word as the one, the other. So it's not just a falling away, it is the falling away. There's only the one falling away. Uh, the falling away here he's referring to comes from the Greek word apostasia. Thayer defines that word as a falling away, defection, or apostasy. All right, so what are we looking at here? There are those who will still call themselves Christians, but they will defect from the truth. And then he mentions here something else, a man of sin, or that man of sin, the son of perdition. All right, so what about him? The man of sin, the son of perdition. Well, he sins and he leads others to sin. And it says the destiny of the man of sin is perdition, son of perdition. Uh, perdition from the Greek word apaleia. Thayer's second definition of that word. The destruction which consists of eternal misery in hell. Now we kind of have a description of the man of sin here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 4. It says, Who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. All right, so what does this man of sin do? He opposes God and he exalts himself as God. Raymond Kelsey in his book on 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, pages 152 and 153 makes this statement and I quote, the participles are present, indicating that his actions are not single acts, but a continuing activity. <clears throat> He is an adversary, an active opponent, one who opposes. Second, he exalts himself against every object which mankind has chosen to worship. He will give place to the he will give place to no object of worship other than himself. He will tolerate no man's rivals or no rivals in man's veneration, unquote. So the man of sin, he is so arrogant that he claims deity. 
and he introduces himself into the position or place that rightfully belongs only to God. Now it says he's showing himself that he is God. The word showing there from the Greek word apodeknomai, get that right. It, Thayer, or excuse me, Strong says that means to show off. That is exhibit, figuratively to demonstrate. That is accredit. So he accredits himself as being God. All right, by the process of elimination, let's see if we can determine who this man of sin is. All right, first of all, we see he is connected with and leads the great apostasy, the falling away. All right, that leaves out unbelieving Jews because they're not going to lead an apostasy away from the gospel because they were never in it. That's also going to leave out any Roman emperor because the Roman emperors were never in Christianity either. So they're not going to lead a falling away. All right. It says he opposes God. That means he teaches error. He exalts himself. So he is a religious teacher. He exalts himself there in the religion of Christianity, so he's a religious teacher. And he sets himself forth as being God. So you kind of put these things together. He is a religious leader that is teaching error and calls himself God. All right, let's look at what Albert Barnes has to say. He kind of puts it pretty plainly, and I quote, and this is from his commentary on Esort. To authority over the conscience in matters which can pertain only to God himself and where he only can legislate. Thus it has been and is one of the claims set up for the Pope that he is infallible. Thus he forbids what God has commanded as the marriage of the clergy, communion in both kinds, the use of the scriptures for the common people. Thus he has set aside the second commandment by the appointment of image worship, and thus he claims the power of forgiveness of sins. Multitudes of things which Christ allows his people are forbidden by the papacy, and many things are enjoined or allowed directly contrary to the divine legislation. So right there, Albert Barnes puts it very plainly that it is the Roman Catholic papacy that is the man of sin that is described here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now, when Jesus claimed, and I want to look at some of these, you know, he claims that he can give the forgiveness of sins, the Pope does, and so do the priests under him. Well, when Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sins, even the Jews understood that he made himself God, even though they did not see the truth of it there. Jesus was God. But you go to Mark chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Mark chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. 
says, but there were certain of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? They understood that Jesus claimed to be able to forgive sin, and they knew that only God can forgive sin. Why don't people see that today? The Pope and the priest claim to be able to forgive sins that God only can do. So what are they claiming? Jerry Moffat in the 1988 Dent Lectureship book on page 252 stated this, and I quote him, the only definite specific personage to meet the requirements of context on the grandest scale, scale is that unholy promoter of immorality, that one who exalts himself, the leader of the great apostate church, the Pope, unquote. So the Roman papacy fits perfectly what Paul is describing here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. Now, Paul had already spoken to the Thessalonians about this. We find that in 2 Thessalonians 2, 5. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 5. He says, Remember ye not <clears throat> that when I was yet with you, I told you these things? You've already been told this. So don't be so anxious about the second coming of Christ coming instantly right now. Again, Raymond Kelsey on, one's page, on page 153 of his book said, <clears throat> It seems that Paul had told the Thessalonians all of this in more exact detail than he writes of it. So he had already talked to them about the things that were going to take place. <clears throat> in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul mentions something that holds back the man of sin. Second Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 6. He says, And now ye know what withholdeth, that he might be revealed in his time. <clears throat> Alright, they know that there was something holding back that man of sin, and that he would be revealed later when the time came. So there was a power that was holding back the man of sin until his time came. All right, <clears throat> what is that? The Roman papacy could not reach the pinnacle of its power while the Roman Empire was still in existence. When the Roman Empire fell, then the Roman Catholic Church gained, great, gained its great power. Whenever you look at the study there of the church, you know, the great apostasy came along and men started promoting, you know, elders within the church and then all of a sudden they began to have the one prominent elder and each of these prominent elders of the congregations in the region would get together and all. I mean, it just exploded from there up till they got the Roman papacy. The Roman Empire fell in the 5th century. I believe it was around 476, something like that. 
The first Roman Catholic Pope was Boniface III in 606 AD. So the Roman Catholic Church gained its power after the Roman Empire fell. Albert Barnes in his commentary makes this, and this is a lengthy quote, but it makes uh, more uh, makes better known what we're looking at here. And I quote, Authority above all kings and emperors, deposing some and advancing others, obliging them to prostrate themselves before him, to kiss his toe, to hold his stirrup, to walk barefooted at his gate, treading him upon the neck and kicking off the imperial crown with his foot. And he says that was according to Newton. Now continue his quote. Thus Gregory VII made Henry IV wait barefooted at his gate. Thus Alexander III trod upon the neck of Alexander I. Thus Celestine kicked off the imperial crown of Henry VI. Thus the right was claimed and asserted of laying nations under interdict, of deposing kings and of absolving their subjects from their oaths of allegiance. And thus the Pope claimed the right over all unknown lands that might be discovered by Columbus and apportioned the new world as he pleased. And all these things claiming prerogatives which can only pertain only to God, unquote. All right, now what about that, uh, the part that he said there of laying nations under the interdict? Well, the Roman Catholic religion had control over the world. If a king of a nation did not do what the Roman Pope wanted them to do, he would stop their priests from doing the seven sacraments that control a person's life. They would not perform weddings. These are just some, not all of them. They would not perform weddings. They would not uh, do the thing there at death whenever they absolve sins. They would not serve communion to the people. So they would not do these things to the people so that they would rebel against the king in order to get the king to come into submission of the pope. And again, there are several other things there that has to do with these sacraments that these priests were doing, but the Roman pope was in control of the countries of this world at that time. <clears throat> now, Paul said in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, that the mystery of iniquity was already at work. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity <clears throat> doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. All right, we'll look at this in a moment, but I want to go first to the apostasy was already at work in the church of Christ and it began in the leadership as we've already kind of looked at. In Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30, <clears throat> Paul here again speaking to the Ephesian elders. Acts chapter 20, verses 28 to 30. He said, Take heed therefore unto, your, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, 
to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. So that apostasy was already at work in the church, and again, the leadership is where it began. Now, I want to go back to 2 Thessalonians 2.7, and I want to look at the literal translation of this verse. It says, For the secret of the lawlessness doth already work. For he who is keeping down now will hinder till he may be taken out of the way. So the word there, translated letteth there in the King James there, means to restrain or hinder. There is one who is restraining now until he is taken out of the way. And again, I want to go to Barnes and quote him from his commentary there in Esord, and I quote, The belief among the primitive Christians was, that what hindered the rise of the man of sin was the Roman Empire. And therefore they prayed for its peace and welfare, as knowing that when the Roman Empire should be dissolved and broken in pieces, the empire of the man of sin would be raised in on its ruins, unquote. All right, and that's just what happened right there. When the Roman Empire fell, that's whenever this man of sin, the Roman papacy, started in its infancy. And again, the first pope was there in 606 AD, Boniface III. Well, when the Roman Empire fell, the man of sin would be revealed. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8. And and when or then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. All right, when we look at this, the man of sin's gonna be revealed. The Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. What is that? That's the word of God and will destroy him at, with the brightness of his coming. So the Lord's going to destroy the man of sin with the breath of his mouth when he comes, the word of God. John 12, 48, Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. So that's the spirit of his mouth. Now, what about the breath of God? The, the breath of God is powerful. In Job chapter 15, verse 30, Job 15, 30, he's discussing here the evil man that is against God, and he will be destroyed by the breath of God. It says, he shall not depart out of darkness. The flame shall dry up his branches, and by the breath of his mouth shall he go away. All right, by the breath of his, that being God's mouth, shall he, that evil man, go away. In Psalm 33, verse 6, Psalm 33, verse 6, 
by the word of the Lord were their heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. You know, whenever you go back there to Genesis chapter 1 and you look at just the way the creation took place, I want to read to you every place where the breath of God is used. Verse 3, and God said, let there be light. Verse 6, and God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under heaven be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth bring forth the herb yielding seed and fruit yielding, tree yielding fruit after his kind. Verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the firmament of heaven. Verse 20, God said, let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature. Verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature. Verse 26, and God said, let us make man in our own image. So by the breath of God's mouth were the heavens made and everything that is in him. God said God's word or God's breath is powerful and God's word is the breath of his mouth. Look at 2 Timothy 3.16 and I'm going to read to you the literal translation of that. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is God breathed and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The word of God is God-breathed. His breath is powerful. And the Lord will destroy the man of sin at his second coming. Second Thessalonians chapter one verse chapter two or one verse eight. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8. Now, it says, They're in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God. Well, that's not going to be the man of sin. But, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. That fits the man of sin that we're looking at. That fits the Roman papacy. They do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Satan is behind the great falling away and the man of sin. 2 Thessalonians 2.9 We're going to be describing a little more about this man of sin. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 9 says, Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. So we see that this man of sin, the Roman papacy, is from the work of Satan. All right, even he who's coming. The word coming there is from the word parousia. Thayer says that that Greek word means presence. The coming arrival, advent. The future visible return from the heaven of Jesus to raise the dead, to hold the last judgment and set up formally and gloriously the kingdom of God. Of course, that will be in heaven, 
not on this earth. And I find it interesting that this same word, parousia, is used to describe Jesus' second coming. His parousia. Here we have the coming of the man of sin. All right, now what does this man of sin do? He is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, just like the magicians there of Pharaoh's day, whenever God brought those ten plagues upon the nation of Egypt. You know, they could use their magic to do some of the same things that it looked like they were doing the same things that Moses and Aaron were doing, but they couldn't do them all. They couldn't do them all. They were lying wonders. They were these false miracles. You think about some of the false miracles of the Catholic Church, like statues crying or statues bleeding and things such as that. That was all fake. That's all made up to try to get these poor people who don't understand the word of God to keep them trapped in the Catholic religion. The man of sin's coming is of Satan. All right, Jesus used true miracles to prove that he was from God. The man of sin uses pretended signs and lying wonders to try to prove that he is from God. Let's go back and quote Albert Barnes again, and he's going to name a few of these lying signs and wonders, and I quote, It is hardly necessary to remark that the papacy has always relied for support on its pretended miracles. Even in our own age, the wonders performed by the Prince Hohenlo and by the pretended seamless garment of the Savior have been proclaimed as true miracles and as furnishing indubitable evidence of the truth of the Roman Catholic system. The dissolving of the blood of Januarius, the removal of Pilate's stairs to Rome, and the transportation to Italy of the House of Our Lady are among the miracles to which there is a constant reference in the Papal Communion. In addition to these and to all similar pretensions, there is the power proclaimed of performing a miracle at the pleasure of the priest by the change of bread and wine into the body and blood, the soul and divinity of the Lord Jesus, unquote. And again, many lying wonders, many of these pretended signs, and people believe these things because they don't know the word of God. They don't know the word of God because they're being told what they need or what the people, what the papacy, what the priest want them to hear, not what God wants them to hear. Now, what is the effect of the man of sin on people? What is that effect? 2 Thessalonians 2.10 tells us. 2 Thessalonians 2.10. And with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. 
So those who follow the teachings of the man of sin are deceived. You look in 2 Corinthians 11, 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your mind should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. You know, the serpent deceived Eve into believing that if she ate of that fruit that God forbade them to eat from, they would be like God, they would not die, their lives would be improved so greatly. Well, the man of sin is deceiving the people that follow him. The Roman papacy is deceiving those millions of Catholics that are following him. Those who follow the teachings of the man of sin practice unrighteousness because that's what they believe. In 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 12 through 15, says, but these as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the things they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness as they that count it pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots are they and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you, having eyes full of adultery that cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls, a heart that or they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, verse 15, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, and following the way of Balaam, the son of Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. You think about it, how much gold is in the Vatican? How much gold is in the various Catholic churches around the world. How did they get that? Selling of indulgences, the telling the people that they can buy their kinfolk's way out of purgatory if they give so much money, things such as that. What is this? They love the wages of unrighteousness just like Balaam did. And those who follow the teachings of the man of sin are perishing spiritually. Again, going back to Raymond Kelsey on page 156 of his book, and I quote, The present participle is used in the Greek construction and literally means those who are perishing. Thus, the deception which wickedness devises is aimed primarily at those who are already in a perishing condition. Why does he wish to deceive those who are already perishing? He wants them to remain in a perishing condition, to go on perishing, unquote. The reason that they are already perishing he mentions there is because they did not receive the love of the truth in order to have salvation. They did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. 
In other words, they were willing to follow error. And God allows people to believe lies if they don't want to believe the truth. God doesn't force us to believe him. He allows us to believe what we want to. But that doesn't mean he's pleased with it. That doesn't mean we're going to go to heaven. That doesn't mean God allows everything. No. 2 Thessalonians 2.11. 2 Thessalonians 2.11. And for this cause, God shall send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. God's going to send them a strong delusion. They're going to be deluded because they're going to want to believe a lie and God's going to allow them to believe it. As we looked at last time, every human being has the responsibility to seek God. Because all we look around, we look around, we know there's a God. If you're not ignorant, you know there's a God. And it's up to us to seek what he wants us to do. And we need to look into the Bible to see what God wants us to do. Not listen to some man. Not listen to some human being that is spouting words out there. No, we need to be listening to God and not believing what everybody is telling us. Now, if the people prefer to believe lies, God's going to allow them to believe what they prefer. In 2 Timothy 4, 3 and 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. The Roman papacy is a great example of being turned unto fables, things that really did not happen. Like Peter being the first pope, that didn't happen. Peter was never a pope. The first pope again, 606 AD, a little bit too late for the apostle Peter to be one. But all these fables that come about, the worshiping there of well, praying to Mary and the worshiping of saints and praying to saints and things such as that, that's all fables. None of that is true in what God wants done. We're to pray only to the Father. Jesus mentioned that in his model prayer and he also gave us the example in his prayer to the Father in John 17. But God gives people over to what they want. Romans 1. Look at three verses in Romans 1. Romans 1, 24. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lust of their own hearts to dishonor their own bodies between themselves. And we're looking here specifically at verse 24 and also verse 26 at homosexuality. People want to give over to homosexuality. God's going to let them. He just give them up because that's where they want to go. They can still repent. They can still come back. But they have to want to. What we're looking at here, those who don't want to. Verse 26 of Romans 1. For this cause God gave them up unto vile affections, for even their women did change the natural use into that which is against nature. That's what they want to do. 
God gave them up to do it. He's not going to force them to do right. He will allow people to do evil if they want to. And then verse 28 of Romans 1. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. You don't want to do right? God's not going to make you do it. He'll just give you up. And who does he give you up to? Gives you up to Satan. Satan wants you. Satan will take you. Oh, Satan's happy with transgenderism and he's happy with homosexuality and he's happy with all these LGBTQ whatever things. Oh, he's really happy about that because he's got them. It's when someone speaks out against that. It's when someone changes and repents of those evil ways and turns to God. That's when Satan has his little armies out there going, well, well, you don't, you're, you're, you're this, you're that, you're whatever, things like that. That's your cancel culture, you see. Satan loves the cancel culture. The result of believing and practicing the lies of the man of sin is found in 2 Thessalonians 2.12. This is the result of believing and practicing those lies. 2 Thessalonians 2.12 that they all might be damned who believed not the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Well, what does he say? They're damned, the Greek word krino. Strong says that word means by implication to try, condemn, punish. And God's the one who does that. Robertson's word picture says this, and I quote, condemnation is involved in the fatal choice made. These victims of the man of sin did not believe the truth and found pleasure in unrighteousness. All right, what about that pleasure? From the Greek word eudokao, Thayer says, this is the definition, it seems good to one is one's good pleasure. Well, what did they have pleasure in? Unrighteousness. Adakia. And Strong says, Adakia means this, legally, an injustice. Properly, the quality by implication, the act. Moral wrongfulness of character, life, or act. So they are having pleasure in doing wrong. In other words, they have the attitude of, whatever feels good, do it. If it feels good to me, I'm going to do it. I don't care what it does to you. Now, look at the contrast between those who follow the man of sin and those who follow God. This is 2 Thessalonians 2, 3 through 17. Now, first of all, in verse 13, or 2 Thessalonians 3, to 13 to 17, not 3, 13. First of all, in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, there is thanksgiving for the obedience of the Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the spirit and belief of the truth. All right, so here we have the little word but, which is a contrast to what was just said. 
Paul was extremely thankful for the faith and obedience of the Thessalonians. And you know, we have an obligation to be thankful for our brethren. The Thessalonians were following God. They were beloved of God. Uh, Brother Foy Forehand in the 1988 Denton Lectureship book on page 260 made this statement, and I quote, The choice unto salvation flows from sanctification of the Spirit, God's part, through belief of the truth, man's part, unquote. Sanctification of the Spirit is accomplished when we obey the truth, 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. 1 Peter 1, 22 and 23. Seeing you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So whenever we are born again, that's talking about baptism, we purify, our souls are purified because we have obeyed the truth through the Spirit. And the Spirit is what tells us what to do through the Word of God. God calls us through the Gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14, whereunto he called you by our Gospel to the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus. So he's called us to the Gospel. And the glory to come is God's glory. And we are invited by God through our obedience to the gospel to have salvation. John 6, 44 and 45. John 6, 44 and 45. No man can come to me except the Father draw him, and this is Jesus speaking, which has sent me to draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. So we're invited by God to have salvation, just as Noah was invited by God to enter into the ark. You go back to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. Noah built the ark. God told him how to do it. God warned him that he needed to do it. But God said to Noah, Genesis 7, 1, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. God invited him to have salvation from the flood, salvation from the evil of the world. In Acts chapter 2, verse 39, Acts chapter 2, verse 39, says, for the promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And again, he calls us by the gospel. In 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Paul says to the Thessalonians, be steadfast. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Stand fast. Okay, therefore. What is it therefore? Because you're sanctified and you're going to obtain the glory of Christ coming. Stand fast. Stako. To be stationary. This is Strong's definition. That is figuratively to preserve or persevere, not preserve, persevere. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58. 
Paul said, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In 1 Corinthians 16, 13, Paul says, Watch ye, stand fast in the faith. Quit you like men, be strong. In other words, act like men, brave and strong and true to your faith in God. In Philippians 1.27, Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And then Paul told him to hold the traditions which you've been taught. The word hold there from the Greek word krateo. Strong says it means to use strength that is seize or retain, literally or figuratively. Now hold or use strength to seize and retain the traditions, paradosis. Thayer's second definition of paradosis. A giving over which is done by word of mouth or in writing. For example, tradition by instruction, narrative, precept, etc. And these traditions were taught by word of mouth and by letters or epistles there of the inspired men. And these were traditions that were from God, not traditions of men. As Jesus mentioned there in Matthew 15, 9. Matthew 15, 9, but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. No, the traditions that Paul was talking about were divine. They were from God. In Mark chapter 7, verse 9, Jesus says there, he said unto them, Full well ye reject the commandment of God that ye may keep your own tradition. When people keep their own tradition, their own doctrine, whatever you want to call it, they are rejecting God's word. Paul's desire for the Thessalonians is given in 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. He says, Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. So our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father will provide the needs for us to do his good will. And you know, God loved us. We know that. John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God provides us a way to overcome the temptations of this world. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted. Above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. God gives us the hope of eternal life. Titus 1, 2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. And we receive comfort and strength to speak and to do God's will. Colossians 3.17. 
And whatsoever you do in word, do all, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. So Paul reminds the Thessalonians of what he's taught about the second coming of Christ. He encourages them. He exposes the man of sin. We know today that it's the Roman Catholic papacy and what's going to happen to him and his followers. Paul then encourages the Thessalonians and us to always be faithful because of the great promise of eternal life when this short life here on earth is over. Well, again, this is Don Boyd with the Moody Church of Christ. I want to thank you for being with us today, and we look forward to being with you next time. When you're in Moody, Missouri, you're invited to visit the Moody Church of Christ, located on Highway E in Moody, Missouri. The congregation there meets on Sunday morning at 10 a.m. for Bible class, 11 a.m. for worship, and then again at 6 p.m. for Sunday evening worship. They also meet at 6 p.m. on Wednesday night for Bible study. We thank you for tuning in today. We hope you enjoyed this program. You can find out more about Bible Media by visiting us at BibleWayMedia.org. You can also find us on several uh, social media platforms now. You can find us not only on Facebook, but you can also can find us on Tumblr. You can also find us on the Twitter alternative known as Telegram and on the Facebook alternative known as MeWe. We hope you enjoyed this program. We hope you will share with others. And as always, we thank you for listening.